So, everybody knows what a director does. Everybody knows what a scriptwriter does. I mean, we don't have to talk about actors and actresses. Everyone knows what they do, right? Even the guy that brings them water and food, right? We also know what they do. But honestly, when you say producer, actually, what does a producer do? So guys, welcome to this episode of Find the Real, where I believe everyone has a story. It doesn't matter if you're a policeman, a nurse, or a teacher. Every single one of you have a story, and my job is to find those interesting stories for you. And today, we have Aminda Faradila. <laughs> I have to make sure the full name, Aminda Faradila, who has produced multiple documentaries, right, for uh, broadcasting channels like uh, Al Jazeera, uh, Channel News Asia, right? So, I mean, you can watch her stuff on like uh, Netflix and YouTube and all this, right? But before that, uh, for mm. producer, mm. before we go into producer, uh, let's talk a little bit about what is, who is Aminda Faradila. Give me a little bit of your background, Lily. Um, so, you want to say you want to start at what year? When we first met? <laughs> that was 1987. <laughs> The morning of um, February 17th, about there, um, when I first met Amil, I mean, it was it was just such a memorable moment, except that I don't remember anything from that time being just born. Um, so Amil and I are siblings. Oh, yeah. And so I was born in this family, and I was born, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you see it, I was born as the middle child. <laughs> now, there's four of us, right? And Amil and I kind of are in the middle, except that Amil's the only boy. So when you grow up, and you're the middle child and um, it sort of feels a lot like being a producer. I feel like my entire life I was set up to be in the position where you are kind of needed but nobody really cares or I mean you're kind of taken for granted. My family will say that I'm deluded and that's not the case but that's how you feel. Because think about it right, if you're a middle child you cannot have the oldest or the youngest. Mm. See, you know what I mean? So the middle child gives you your status, gives you that special distinction. Oh my god, epiphany. That's how I um I had to deal with when I did my depression. That was what I told myself lah, basically. Depression is nothing to laugh about. But you know. Um so but yeah, that's how we grew up. I grew up kind of happy. I was known as the emo child. There was a song that was written and I think Amel really wants to present or perform this song and just to relive my trauma. Um why don't you go here? Alright, it's the key of G sharp minor. Um, you know, it goes something like this. Sensitive. Yeah, she's a little bit sensitive. I just want to say that I think in in 2023, you can't you can't do this kind of thing. But back then, um, as a like seven year old girl crying because nobody loves her, apparently that was humorous to most. But I think that really helped build my character. Actually, right, I think the cat loved you quite a lot. You know. Yeah, the ones that ran away. What's <laughs> <laughs> that? Nine, all thirteen of them. Yeah, no, but yeah, I, I think we had a relatively good childhood, I think. I mean, you know, there are some things, every family goes yeah. through their ups and downs. And I think for the most part, it helped me. I mean, it it, it made us who we are. Yeah, but, but, but here's the thing that's quite funny, right? Like all of us have like really diverse careers to an extent. But I think creatively as a family, uh, all four of us uh, decided to do something a little bit creative with our lives. Like our oldest sister, um, mm-hmm. Other than planting trees, uh, she she used to be in the first uh, all girl independent English band, right? Um, you know, I play for this little band called Pop Shabby. I mean, Dragon Red, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's I know Pop Shabby really well, but Dragon Red not so much. Doesn't ring a bell. Doesn't ring a bell at all. Some people call us Big Dragon until today. And then uh, you ended up uh, being a producer, whatever that is. And uh, Zura 
creatively she cleans teeth, I guess. But she still sings on the side. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We're not great, but she does. So <laughs> James, Zura, please, Zura, I'm sorry. I mean, like you know, Amel thinks Claire's the best singer in the world. Let's just let him have it. So, so, so that's the thing, right? We we grew up in a kind of a creative family. So I assume it's through these experiences that you picked up your passion for. I mean, I wouldn't say filmmaking to an extent, but telling stories. Ah, oh, nice agree. Um, but I think I think the one. Okay, one thing really interesting is when you grow up in a household full of children. I mean, where <laughs> there's four of us, not very far in age, eh, a little bit here and there, but everyone is trying to fight for the attention of your parents, right? Because there's four of us. So the idea is that we're all trying to carve that corner of the world to make ours, so mm. to speak. And it so happened that we try our best to not bachanga so much, you know? Mm. So it's like, mm. okay, Amil does this, I'm not going to do that. Rina does this, uh, I'm not... Well, kind of, we ended up kind of hitting the same mm-hmm. spot at mm-hmm. one point. But what happens is at the end of the day, you feel like, you know, you want to find something that's yours mm-hmm. and you want to kind of excel at it, right? So, like, I wasn't going to go into, let's say, architecture or something like that. I knew I didn't have a knack for it and I'm terrified of failure. But then when it came to telling stories, do you not remember not when we were in, growing up, Ken? Like, uh, films, movies, and all that was very much a part of our lives, right? We go and rent the DVD, right? Uncle Mike will come. Okay, we have an uncle that will come to our house. And then he'll come to me and say, okay, Farah, so what's the movie of the week? And then we'll basically be giving him DVDs plus reviews. And he'll come back the next week. I didn't like it. What kind of nonsense is this? I want Steven Seagal. You know what I mean? Hey, under siege. <laughs> exactly. So we grew up constantly. It was, it was a thing in the household. And I also remember, if you think about documentaries specifically, when we were school holidays, what were we watching on TV? I just want to sing the song, okay? <laughs> Hello, world. I'll be waiting. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. Um, Michelle Kruziak. Uh, I mean, now she's an actress, yes, but prior yes. to that, she was this travel host, right? Oh my God, what's the name of that show? Travelers. Travelers. Amazing. We watched it on Mega TV. Exactly. So there was that and Urban Peasant, and we were watching documentaries and like factual content was kind of something we were really into. I didn't think about it at the time, but at that time, something really resonated. It was this thing of you wanted to see the world, and it was different. Huh? It's not like the stuff you have now. Back then, it was like, it was the first time I ever saw someone play that thing. Allah, in the Caribbean countries, they have that. Uh, pen, pen drum. Pen drum or something. I remember that episode clearly and I was like, oh my God, that's so interesting. And you couldn't go on Google and just like, oh, I want to learn more about um, Bahamas or whatever. Oh, correct that. It's a hand pen. Oh, okay. Well, all right. Let's be pedantic, <laughs> shall we? So, but, but it was something about that to know that these people existed across the world from mm-hmm. us and it just, I think it always intrigued us. Lah. So that sort of helped me sort of see this as a, a, a viable avenue I guess mm-hmm. in terms of making a career it's part of storytelling it's part but it was part of consumption mm-hmm. you know I wanted mm-hmm. to be part of that story as well mm-hmm. so <laughs> so so I like that right I think uh, the fact that we we grew up you know we watched all these shows it kind of uh, you know made us who we are and that kind of drove the storytelling agenda in your life you know so then as you were growing up right okay you found out that hey you know what I want to tell stories too. I want to be part of the storytelling process. So, you went to Lim Kotwik. Yeah? Oh, yes, I did. You know what built character? Can I swear on this? No, right? No, 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 no. I'll try, I'll, I'll try to monetize. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, built character. Yes, I went to that university. <laughs> we'll share, bleep that out. But yes. My degree was from Katina. Okay, do continue. But study in Cyberjaya. <laughs> Don't knock it. But you continue? Yeah, so so I like to know again, like, did formal education like somehow or other form 
or you know build your skills uh, or your craft and hone your craft to become the person that you are today is it more formal education or was it learning on the job when you started working um I think it's a little bit of both, yeah. Because to tell you the truth, when I started doing, when I was in film school, basically, the all the hype back then was fiction, mm. right? Everybody wants you to be because I was obsessed with Wes Anderson, right? Mm. Not in the way that kids are today, but I was I really liked Wes Anderson's work. I liked, um, yeah. So I like, I mean, I also like Christopher. Doesn't matter lah. We're not here to talk about my film interest, right? But I was it, fiction was where they pushed you towards. I had one semester of documentary my entire four years, right? Mm. But what really helped in that environment was that you're forced to watch things that you don't watch, usually watch. And I think the formal education aspect, you you learn theory, you learn all these different things, but it wasn't enough. Mm. So but I will tell you the real turning point was when, I mean, the real turning point, I think, or the thing that really you really learn in formal education is how to work with others. Mm. You learn how to defend your stories. You learn how to how to put up with people's lack of creativity or too much creativity and you learn how to work with others. And so I think that's the most important thing. However, mm. there's not a single thing I learned in university except for maybe um, Final Cut Pro, like the name, uh, not even learning how to use it, uh, just to learn the word Final Cut Pro, right? Oh, no, no. Outside of that, I don't really... I, I, I want to correct something. I'm sure there's oh, one no. thing. There are two words, right, that, that I remember. It's called German Expressionism. She couldn't stop talking about the lines. The lines are everywhere. This movie's got German expressionism written all over it. I remember that. Lah. Yep. Okay, that's the other thing, okay? When you go to university, for a minute that you feel like you're part of a club, an exclusive club, and you want to tell the whole world you know something. Oh, French New Wave. I was, people, I swear to God, I had arguments with people because they thought I was too irritating. I was going like, they would say something like, oh, far, have you seen Forgetting Sarah Marshall? I'm like, is it French? Because that's the only films I would watch. It was, you know, but... You have to go through that process, lah. I mean, like if we were to go to when Amil was in university, I mean, engineering, what did he come up with? A sponge to wash the roof of your car. That was his final year project. So let's not talk, lah. Wasn't my final year project. It was my second year project, okay? My final year project was measuring the output of sound in the LRT system near Kladijaya. Oh, that's where you saw the woman in Telekung. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Let's not, let's not go there, okay? We'll have another Ghostbuster episode that we'll talk about Pontianaks. So, so what I like about this, right, is you spend, I mean, when we talk about filmmaking, storytelling, like everyone talks about, like what you said, you know, doing a movie, la, fiction, la, right? And you said you just did one episode, or sorry, one uh, course on documentaries. My entire four years. Yeah, so what got you hooked on it? Why? You know? To tell you the truth, it's actually a very natural, organic process that took place. When I finished, when I graduated school, I first did a short stint at Astro, right? Because I just wanted to try it out and all that stuff. Astro, I mean, it's truly a pillar of our society, like, you know. Um, I, I didn't quite like the experience there, to be honest. I, I thought I was done with TV. I thought it was a, no offence, but it was a bullshit industry. People were lazy. That's how I felt. People weren't creative enough. People weren't striving hard enough, whatever. Then, by chance, I've always been interested in documentaries. I've always loved it. Um, but by chance, I noticed there was an opening in this company, and I didn't know there were even documentary uh, companies, and I joined. And I met the team that I'm still working with today. We're not in the same outfit, but mm. we are. It's kind of the same team. From the day I stepped into that that building, I immediately knew this is what I wanted to do. It was the idea that you are not creating stories to reflect reality. Mm. You're making reality palatable to everyone. You know what I mean? Mm. You see, mm. when you see someone on screen, 
it's not someone who, oh wow, what a great actor, making me feel something. No, 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 that person is really feeling something and you're feeling it too. For a minute, there's a, there's a moment of oneness, mm. you know what I mean? And, and that just couldn't, like, oh. I'm I mean, as, as, as a theatre actor back in the day, a thespian, um, <laughs> sorry, nobody understands this but I'm not had to play. I'm not had to play someone who was visually impaired, right? In a in a play, and for the longest time, I don't know why. Amir, when he's reading, he had to read Braille, and I've seen a lot of visually impaired individuals who read Braille normally, but Amir would read it, read it like this. I don't know why. Like he's a squirrel or something. So strange. Sing I, the song. I went. I went to MAB Malaysian Association of Blind People. I think that's what it's called, right? And that's how the guy read in front of me. And I was like. Do all blind people read <laughs> Braille like that? Oh, I guess so. Didn't you also bust and then someone asked you to leave? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I mean, just, just just to let you know, um, as part of me uh, re- living the experience of a blind musician, because the play had, well, I, I, I played this guy who was a blind musician. I went to uh, Pataling Street and um, I busked. I busked as a blind person. And uh, the busker who was there, who was actually blind, told me, uh, excuse me, this is my spot. Can you move away? <laughs> Yeah, so key learning is you got to know the people around the area before you bust. Exactly. And yeah, I don't know about what I want to say. Is, hey, I just want to say that if you're interested in finding out more about this play, right, it's actually a, it was actually an adaptation. Goldie Hawn was in the original. It's called Butterflies Are Free. Yeah. yeah. Go check it out. And I think if you look hard enough, you might be able to find a recording of Amil singing it. I knew. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we well, this is what we call Larry Topic. All right. Uh, so let's, let, let's get on to it, right? So you. You joined this company, right? Where you believe in trying to tell not just stories, but stories that uh, reverberate with others, trying to be authentic as well. So how did that journey ended up with you becoming a producer? <clears throat> so, okay, um, just a bit of a background. Like in Malaysia, the documentary world isn't very formalized, mm. right? Um, I don't think it's very formalized anywhere, to be to be honest. Tapi kalau, let's say in Malaysia, usually you start, uh, you start in a production assistant, assistant producer, producer, mm-hmm. then you go up to become an executive producer, right? You might be a director or anywhere in between. But when I started, I, I skipped the production assistant process because I came in, in like just raring to go. And my first job, mm. right? Out of the gates, my first job was with NetGeo. Wow. Right? So there was a time not to like blow my own horn. But um, at the time, I was said to be the youngest assistant producer on a NetGeo project. I was only like 19, 20 at the time, right? And actually, this, this is an interesting tidbit here. Because I made this film, it was called um, Silat, uh, Fight Master Silat. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So that was my first job. It was, it was difficult. It was amazing. It also burst my documentary bubble. But a cool anecdote to this is my husband, Anis, actually watched that film while he was in New York before we even met. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the connection was there. Oh my oh, god! So love, Angel. <laughs> love blossomed in New York. In yeah. New York. Yeah, exactly. He saw it. He's like, I want to know who produced this. <laughs> like, like what? Anyone who watches a documentary, the first thing is, what the who produced this show? I tell you. Exactly. So in the so in the beginning stages, I was working very closely with. Um, right now, we we're working together still with Justin, my director, and it was like. From zero, suddenly I am inundated with things, right? So it, back in the day, the NetGeo process was, we went to pitch this story, NetGeo wanted to do it, gave us the, the grant to do it, and you had like a few, they gave you like a year basically to complete the entire project. Our project involved bringing in an American Silat um, practitioner to Malaysia 
and he was going to do his final like rites of passage mm-hmm. testing, right? Mm-hmm. The traditional, very traditional format. Um, but people don't understand there's a lot that goes into it. So like, let's say, for example, the script, if we were to say the sky was blue that day, we have to have three different sources proving mm-hmm. that that sky was blue. That was part of what producing it would what we had to do and to tell you the truth and, then, and that's a requirement from Nat Geo like there's an audit process that says if you know you're claiming something I need to make sure that it's cited there's proper evidence and they'll go through the citation so there were like, I'll be working through the night it's very academic uh. to some degree I mean you know I mean if you ask my husband I'll be like um no but the idea that it's it has this element of trying because Nat Geo has had I'll emphasize this Nat Geo had this this, the reason that they were seen to be so iconic was because they had this standard. I remember staying up till the wee hours of the morning, speaking to people in the US, mm. trying to just clarify certain things, right? Because how do you explain mengasap keris? You know, how do you explain that in a way? Smoking the keris. Yeah, exactly. That means something else, you know? <laughs> Dang, the euphemism. But then um, that was kind of... So So coming out of that, I was an, I was an assistant producer immediately. We The film finished... And I remember this point. I was very young. It was my first job, right? And the screening was happening. We was we screened it at GSC. Mm. And I was standing there. And then my director comes next to me. And we had just met that year, right? And he puts his arm around me. And then I told him, I said, congratulations. And he was so surprised. Because it's like, he's like, no, I couldn't have done it without you. Congratulations to us. And that was the first moment I realized, holy crap, it's not the director's show, right? And from that point on, I've been working with the same guy and the same team, same cameraman and all that. And um, I just started continuing. I from 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 Nat Geo, we went to History Channel. We've done Al Jazeera. We've done Channel News Asia. We've done Discovery. We've done BBC for a bit. We did. We've done a, quite a bit, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, it all could not have been done without a producer. <laughs> just want to say yeah, that. Yeah. So so now let's go back to it, right? Okay. So what exactly does a producer do? Let's let's just talk about it in the sense of, okay, overarching, what do you do? And what's like a typical nine to five day in the life of a producer? Okay, so currently my day is more like 10 to about whatever time. Damn creative, guys. <laughs> you know how we do. Um, but okay, so I'm not going to say this is, the, this is something that works for everyone, but I'll speak from experience on my end. I am a documentary filmmaker that mostly does broadcast work. There are the artsy fartsy starving artists, so I won't bring them into the picture. I love you guys. You guys are my favorite. Best storytellers, I tell you. Um, I'm also very broke. Um, but then the idea is that um, the idea here is okay, so a producer, this is separate from fiction, from feature films and television. In a small team like mine, documentary producers tend to be creative producers. So what they mean is, what I mean by that is they are the ones that find the story. Mm. They find the team to pull off the story, whether it be a director, a cameraman or whatever. They get the money for it. They find the platform. Um, if you're a creative producer, you are working with a director in terms of post, you are going on shoots, you are you're doing every aspect of it. And when, a, and when a documentary film or film wins best film, the award goes to the producer. Because the producer most times owns the film. Or, yeah... It has some ownership towards the film. I think that's interesting. I I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah, that the no, producer do. owns the yeah. film. I just want I just want people to know when you all talk about the director, director maybe in the fiction world, maybe in in certain spaces, director has a the creative has a creative say, has a creative it's all creative there, mm-hmm. right? So when you look at the art form, you like it, you say the person who created it, therefore I should like them. Mm-hmm. I just want you to know, director needs to be hired by someone. Who hires the director? The producer does. 
the director can only work within the limitations that's been set by the producer. And in the documentary world, producers and directors, the term is sometimes interchangeable. Which is right now, my position is, I will always say, first and foremost, I am a producer. I like to add the word senior or sometimes creative, sometimes supervising producer on top of it. Why not executive? Ah, uh, that's a different thing. Ah. Oh. That's the thing. Because I don't own anything. Like, I'm not, um, I don't put money into something. I don't call myself an executive producer. Um, however, I'm also a director. I have directed numerous films in my life, but I've also been the producer on that. And at, even at the end, I credit myself as a producer. I write the scripts. I credit myself as a producer. Because there is no bigger position than the producer, in my opinion. To all the producers out there, unite! Humility is her strong point. So, actually... I've been doing this for 16 years. There's no place for humility, I tell you. Now, here's the thing, right? Now, this is something I honestly want to know. Like, when it comes to picking the subject matter, mm. right? Like, go through the thought process. Like, how, how do you decide that, hey, man, I'm going to tell a story about ABC, XYZ. Like, What's the thought process like? How do you do it? So it depends. Sometimes sometimes when sometimes we have an issue that happened, like oh flooding, for example, mm-hmm. then we have broadcasters who are interested in telling that story, then we'll come into play. But my favorite kind of stories, to be honest, are the ones when you meet someone, um, you have a conversation with someone, and suddenly you realize, holy crap, there's something there, right? For example, my favorite documentary of all time that we had made, la, one of them is um a story about twin sisters living in the red light district. Oh, I know this. Yeah, it has choice. That story kind of like, I'm telling you people, people basically, I can't use the word shit on this. Like when we came up with the idea, and in the beginning when we were pitching the story, everyone's like, oh, just another story about street kids, right? Mm-hmm. But we had met these girls. That's how we came up with the story. We met these girls. It's not a social worker story. It was a story about resilience, about the human spirit, about youth, about rebellion. It's about finding independence. And all I had to do, I remember that moment, like when we kept getting shut down and we just decided we're going to show people who these girls who, are. Who, who shut you guys down? We were pitching in Tokyo. We were pitching, mm-hmm. in, we were pitching all, over, all over the place and everyone would tell us a story. We love you guys. We think you guys are great. So much spirit, so much energy, but it's a sad story. And So like, do you need to prepare a pilot first and then go to these broadcasters and say, okay, I've got this story, so you want to fund me and I'll tell you the whole story? Or, or, or you just verbally said, Hey man, I've got these twin sisters in Red Light District. I've got this angle for a story. Would you like to invest? What's the process? Mm, for us, there are two main ways. One way is that we can, if we feel like a story fits a broadcaster, fits a network, a contact that we have, we go, hey, listen, here's an email. Check it out. Here's a synopsis. Um, if we have a short video of them or whatever, we'll send it over. Mm. Or the second one, which is the harder one, it's the one that we go cold. We go to pitches. Mm. We go to forums. We speak to as many people as possible. We prepare a trailer. But in the process, this is before we even get my knee, we're already filming stuff. So those are called passion projects. So those are the ones that we sh- we're shopping to get um, to get funding. Like I remember this one time, sorry, I'm just going to digress. I was making a film. Uh, it was about, I was in Aceh. La. This is a film about young girls who are in a choir. They do nasheed, Islamic choir, kan? And But in their village, they said that the female voice is haram. So, but they were still doing it. Yeah. So I did, so I, I've, I think I remember this. Yeah, so it was kind of a, it's kind of a, it was a difficult story to do, but it's a very soft, sweet story. Mm, mm. So I had, I was filming with them, blah blah blah, blah and I come back. I was in Korea, I was in Tokyo, I was in Jakarta, trying to sell the story. Right. I remember there was this one instance. I was speaking to a Korean filmmaker, and he just looked at me. He goes, "I don't do pro pro Islam work." Yikes. Said, well, technically, it's not pro Islam. <laughs> you think about it. And he was like, "No, I'm not going to support anything that has to do with Islam." And I understood his standpoint. 
on the other hand of things, I was trying to pitch it in certain other places and there are people who told me this feels like it's going against Islam. I don't want a community of people getting mad at me. But in my head, I was like trying to scream at them and tell them, listen, you know, you have, it's not a story about that. It's a story about resilience, et cetera, et cetera. Until uh, like this thing, this, this, these words that came to my mind, because I'm telling you, producers also have to be salesmen, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the term that I used to describe these girls, I said, it's like a Muslim sister act. <laughs> that line got me funding from Tribeca, New York. So in my head, like literally, because after I said that, everyone laughed, people were more on board, they felt more comfortable because then they realized that we weren't pushing an agenda. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, so I just digressed. I don't even remember what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so, so I like that, right? I mean, that, that sales element. I think it's so important for you to be able, if you want to convey that story to potential viewers or the public, right? You need to get the buy-in of, you know, those big production houses, sorry, those big broadcasters and things like that. So being able to clearly articulate the story, the value of the story, I think that's key in the pitch. Yeah. I would assume so. I think I think if you look at it, storytelling in general is a sales pitch. When anyone has a conversation with you, there is a point that they're trying to bring forward, right? There is a message. There's a reason I'm telling you the story. Mm. And I want you to get that. I want you to go home with that messaging. Mm. So I have to sell that to you. That's a documentary as well. People who, especially in the RT world, because I get laughed at, not laughed at, but I get like sort of ridiculed a little bit. So, Alah, she, she's TV. You know, that's kind of what they call me. But in the other side, like my family calls me the artsy, fartsy, starving artist sort. So, because I'm also broke. But then the idea is that, nothing here is not an industry to get rich. Lah. But then the idea is that at the end of the day, here's the thing. We're all Chinese. We're selling ourselves. We're selling our craft. And a lot of times we're selling these stories. Not to say it's a bad thing. I want you to listen to this story. If not, why am I making films? If you are one of those filmmakers that make films that say, I want to be true to my art form, great, have your five viewers. I'm interested in having as many people go home feeling heard, feeling like they, they, they learned something. You know what I mean? No, no, I get it, I get it. But it's it's also something that needs to be commercially viable as well. Lah. Of, you know? of course, what you want to eat, no, no, how you want to pay your bills. I get it. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm a salesman, been doing sales for the past 15 years, you know, and, and you're right. It is it is about telling stories to be able to close the sale. Yeah, I will tell you one of the best storytellers I've ever met in my life. And I have met so many people. It's actually you, Normil. Do you know why? <laughs> because there are times I'm telling you all, um, listen, okay, when we ever get a chance to have a conversation with Amil, right? Halfway through, you know that he's lost the bloody plot. He doesn't know where he's going. But he goes for it, man. He is still rowing. I will go. <laughs> he will get that. And I'm telling you, if he wants to sell you something, he will try. But you don't feel... I almost bought his broke-ass piece of shit car. I but, almost um, bought that car. Uh, E90, 320D, alright? It's, uh, it's a beast, right? The talk is amazing. Anyone wants to buy? A 2011. No! <laughs> okay, so, so here's the thing, right? Now, very clear that when it comes to uh, a documentary, I mean, we don't talk about film, we talk about a documentary, the producer kinds of, like, has full ownership of the product. Yeah, uh, okay, of in, course in it depends sense. in different, there are different formats and oh, all that. Like, so, yeah. so it's very clear that the producer, I mean, you've got two aspects of it. You've got the producer who tries to go and find funding, you know, gets what's, what story needs to be told, how do I tell the story. You also have uh, creative control as well, mm. right? Um, and yeah, you're involved in the hiring process of not just the director, the talents as well. And so I get it. You win an award, it goes to the producer. So now very clear on what a producer does, right? A little bit, a little bit, yeah? Now, just a few misconceptions about producers. Now, Malaysia lah, as a country, you know, um, the quality of our films, the way we tell stories, 
uh, it's not always put up there, right? Mm-hmm. But on a documentary perspective, you know, uh, based on what I've seen, and not just because she's my sister, but uh, based on what I've seen, I think uh, the not just the quality of the production, the storytelling is there. So how do you benchmark um, where we are uh, as Malaysian storytellers versus, for example, um, obviously we always like to point to the West. Lah. Where are we? Mm. I will say, I can only speak for documentaries because I'm not going to talk touch fiction mm-hmm. at all, right? Because I think fiction is a whole big problem there. But in terms of documentaries, I think we don't have a space. Um, I think that the industry is is growing and our government's actually very good with providing funding, but there are limitations to these mm-hmm. fundings as well. A lot of this funding that's been very good for us has also come with caveats. Talk about patriotism, talk about um, talk about sport and all these different things. It's, it's always... Like, I, I make this joke with well, Anis and I, my husband and I make this joke sometimes and it's like, Malaysia is like, we're still in that point where Mad Men is, you know, like we're still in that 60s, 70s era where, the, you know, because it's difficult because we're dealing with so many different sensibilities, I think. But here's the issue with the means, the thing about storytelling in Malaysia. If you make a good doc about Malaysia, where are you going to see it? And then when you, I'm, I've had, this is through experience. I've had someone tell me, Farah, I love your story, but nobody cares about Malaysia. Yeah. You're not Indonesia. We're Indonesia. You can do so many things. You want to do a Muslim story? You talk about it's the most populous Muslim state. Anything can work. Mm. You talk about being Singapore. Like, no, no one cares either. So lah, you know. I mean, like the the thing about it is Malaysia is not exotic enough. Mm, mm, mm. You know. So I think. The thing about Malaysians, I think right now, we have to tell really authentic stories. We need to really focus on what's authentic but relatable internationally. It's not your wow. Mm. I'm telling you, it's not your wow. It's not your nasi lemang. Mm. It's not all these things. It's your people. Mm. Find something about your people. I'll tell you this. This is... I'm not even going to the West. One of my favourite, most amazing documentaries I've ever seen in my life is a Korean. It's called Love Don't Cross That Bridge or something like that. Mm. I know the filmmaker and all that. And I watched this film. It's about an elderly couple who live in the rural parts of Korea mm. and the husband's dying. Ayo. Yeah, I mean, if you watch it, oh, you know. Pull heartstrings, pull heartstrings. Yeah, and the whole film, this filmmaker actually, because documentary filmmaking involves a lot of sacrifice as well. You have to be there. If you want to tell the story, it's not a matter of two weeks or shoot, shoot establishing Kuala Lumpur then, or shoot interview Macheni. No. If you want to do it proper, in my opinion, if you want to do it proper, you sacrifice time. Mm. You go, so he was living with this couple in these job like mountains or whatever and they find out that the husband's going to die and he just from a distance just films them throughout this entire process mm. until she's by herself throughout this entire process and yeah did you learn anything about Korea there? no did it matter that they were speaking Korean? no do you care about whether the food was halal? no at that point all you cared about was that the story the story mm. and that's what I think Malaysians lack this concept where we Malaysians are full of stories. Forget your subject. Ah, this is the thing. Number one, documentaries, it's not about your subject matter. It's about your story. You're not, if you're doing your whole like beyond 2000, no one is going to be old enough to know that reference beyond 2000, Mm. right? But if you're doing your topical documentary about like the history of the, you know, Tenon or something like that, fine. But if you're telling a story, a character-based story, it's not about your subject. It's about your story. Where are you taking these people? Someone once told me, if you can come up with your story in, in a line of emotions instead of plot points and scenes, mm-hmm. you're successful. That's what you want to do. You want to take someone on a journey. And I think that's what Malaysia could, could, could benefit from. Like, thinking about filmmaking as a journey of emotions and stories. I, 
I watched quite a few documentaries. Um, I mean, very much sport related. I mean, the whole world watched The Last Dance, right? But my team, Jordan, right? Goat. So but, good. But I watched uh, this thing called uh, Welcome to Wrexham. Mm, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, so you so you watch it, right? So it's 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 a it's a typical uh, sports documentary. Basically, they follow this club Wrexham, which was purchased by Ryan Reynolds and um, Rob. Yeah, everyone always forgets Rob's last name, like, okay. Ryan Reynolds' friend. We call him, right? So it's a journey of this football club, right? The trials and tribulations that it comes through. What happens when you've got this big American money? The big investors come in. The impact of that money to the town. Right, mm. we all know that it's a commercial endeavor. Everyone knows that, right? But the way the story is told, right, is the impact to the town. There's 18 episodes, and I watched episode 17, 18, right? And to watch that club not get promoted, like that final game, you the drama. Spoiler. No, it's okay. Everyone knows they got promoted this year, but this documentary was last year, right? Mm. So I, I watched 18, 18 episodes. The last two episodes got tears. They're coming out, you know. So, so again, it's while the subject is, uh, you know, entertaining and exciting for me. It's the way the story was told. So I, I buy that. It's, it's how you tell the story. Exactly. I was also say, I'm, uh, to be fair, I'll give Netflix that, right? Netflix has allowed us, yeah, has allowed us to be, to, to ne- documentaries have never been more accessible than they have been mm-hmm. now, right? Mm-hmm. I would say I never watch sports documentaries because it's always one of the, it's like one of two things, right? Either a sportsman died early or... The Goliath story. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. It's like the whole from rags to riches mm-hmm. kind of thing. However, Netflix, that series, the one with all the sports scandals, right? Oh, like like, like Malice in the Palace and uh, the one the referee. Yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. I absolutely love that because why? In short, the fact that there are fallacies in sport, it's not all about like, it's not all about like, oh, this young boy from the ghetto, he's yeah. going to survive. No, it's like these guys are cheating people. They're real human beings. Mm-hmm. And um, it talks about heartbreak. It talks about abuse. Vulnerability. Vulnerable mental health. Mm-hmm. I mean, loves that topic. Like, you know, it's an important topic. <laughs> but the idea is the fact that, exactly, it comes down to, there's nothing unique today. Like, we're talking about storytelling, right? All stories are kind of the same. Mm-hmm. It's just being told differently. Yeah, yeah that's all it is. So, so here's the thing, right? I mean, you've been doing documentaries for the better part of 15 years, right? 16 yeah, 60. Guess how old I am. I know I don't look a day past 80. It's 36. So, <laughs> uh-huh. so, any advice you would give, um, you know, any young budding um, film producer who's watching this, like, if they wanted to hone their craft, uh, you know, improve their skills, or, yeah, what advice would you just give in general? Hmm. Um, nobody ever, I, I, I feel like, I've never heard a young person say, I want to be a producer, right? They always say, I want to make films, etc. Mm. Um, here's the thing. I think that if you want to start in the world of documentaries, the first thing you got to do is know what a documentary is. I think go and watch, go and familiarize yourself with the process, familiarize yourself with that world. Um, it's not just your pretty, beautiful pictures that you see on Netflix. It's also your majalati to be honest. Mm. You know, till today, I watch majalati. Are they still around? Yeah, I still watch it. And the reason being is because you have to remember these are the things that the masses are watching. If you want to be a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker specifically, you have to also remember you are you carry influence. Because when you say, I'll tell you this, sir, when you say you make documentaries, there is a certain... Responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you say something is a documentary, people th- take those things and they quote it. They quote it as facts. I've seen it happen in front. <laughs> exactly. I do it. Suddenly as though they have some PhD in some subject. Actually, they just watch a documentary about dolphins. You saw that thing on Netflix. I tell you. Che guvara, the fellow. Exactly. Suddenly, you're an expert. But that's what happens. So I think that we have to take these things seriously. If you want to make documentaries, like watch a lot of 
young people making documentaries on YouTube and good for them. Mm. But a lot of it is not is factually inaccurate mm. or it's too emotive. I mean, it's fine if you want to insert yourself in the piece, but consider that you're influential just simply because you're a documentary film mm. filmmaker. Um, and finally, I think the most important thing is to realize that it is such a beautiful industry. Because I'll tell you, Amil can attest to this, right? I grew up moody, angry, um, yeah, really bitter, really sad, really like feeling kind of like, woe is me lah, you know? I was very much that. Um, just, I mean, but I've changed that like, yesterday. No, <laughs> basically, the one thing that I feel like really, really changed my perspective and everything is doing documentaries. Why? We are privileged enough. I, it's, yeah. This is, this is, I'm so lucky. I feel that I go everywhere and I meet so many different people. And if someone wants to tell me like, oh my God, I'm starving. I'm like, no, you're not starving. Yeah. You know, uh, you want to say you're unloved. No, you're not unloved. Mm -hmm. The idea here is that there's so, I have seen people with so little be so happy and mm -hmm. people with so much feel so angry. Um, and it gives you perspective. So if you ever get the opportunity to be part of this industry, I welcome you. But at the same time, I just want you to to be aware that you're privileged. Yeah, you're yeah. You have a responsibility to tell those stories, tell the stories in the right way, you know. But but what 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 I like this, um, you know, exactly what you mentioned just now that it's not just about telling the story, it's about that responsibility of telling the story properly, of uh, conveying the message and being able to really articulate, right? And and go through those emotions with the filmmaker. Yeah. So. I think I think very clear. I think that's that's nice. A, ni a nice way to close that segment, right? So on to some fun stuff, lah. I mean, it, not to say it wasn't fun just now, you know, but because nobody cares about the producer. It's all about the director. <laughs> I also direct, but I don't want to push that narrative. <laughs> no, I think I think today is very clear what what actually a producer does. I mean, honestly, like uh, I think I've known you for the past five minutes or something like that. How many years? About thirty six, ah. And and yeah, I mean, I I kind of know what a producer does, you know, because I'm in the creative industry a little bit. But but yeah, I've never. Well, you were in that singer commercial, right? I feel so sewing machines, not fridge. Sewing machine, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so I was a talent, you know. But but yeah, I I get it, you know. Now now I understand. Um, it's not just about when you when you when you hear producer, the, the first thing you think about is okay, this person is responsible for getting uh the production that as in getting the shots done and so on and so forth I didn't really know about the selling you know the selling process of you know pitching ideas and things like that right I knew you went for pitches but I didn't know the kind of work that went behind those pitches where you go cold blind without any products you know so yeah now on to the fun stuff right uh, this is I like I like I like would you choose a good director and a bad script or a bad director and a good script good director bad script why why Huh? Really? Yeah, 100%. You know why? You just give, you just said the importance of telling the story. Yeah. So if I have the bad script, okay, because in documentaries, the scripts we never follow now. Do you know you're talking about fiction? I don't know fiction, ma. Oh, but the logic yeah. of it is that if you have a good director, he's going to be able to tell that story. You don't even, I'm just going to say, there are so many shows that we, okay, Thundercats, for example. It's a terrible, look at the script. If you had to read the script by itself. You're talking about the cartoon. The, the cartoon. <laughs> the cartoon. Hey. It is a terrible. of Lionel. No, I'm telling you, there are so many terrible, okay, Avengers. I'm going to say, I'm going to put me on record, okay? The entire Marvel universe, the scripts are terrible. The dialogues are terrible. But what do you watch? Ha, huh, director to pandai kot bomb sini. Oh, costume, costume. Lighting, lighting. Animation, graphic, graphics. That's why. In a documentary, it was the same thing. We get a lot of times... Okay, so we have bread and butter projects, right? The bread and butter projects are like the boring 
no, they're really, really good to cli- future clients. <laughs> uh, guys, amazing. No, but sometimes it's a little bit more message driven. And in those situations, we have a script that might be a little bit stiff, but with a good director, people watch it. Trust me, I've been there, I've done it. Okay, okay. So the good director wins. La. Of course, all the time, always. So let's just say, la, I mean, you're quite a colourful person, la, you know. Um, let's just say if we had to do a documentary about your life, right? It's all in Kardashian. <laughs> No, 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 no. I, I, That's our family. I, I, I don't think I can play Rob. Maybe I can play Kim. I'm but like, Chloe, I don't <laughs> You're going out with basketball stars. I'm like, you know too much about the Kardashians, bro. You know too much. Lamar Odom, that's his name. <laughs> so, okay, continue. So, so that's the question, right? If you could make a documentary about yourself, right? What would the title of that documentary be called? And more importantly, if it was a biography, lah, who would play you? Oh, it's not a documentary then. Oh, it's like a got drama, got ah, dramatization, ah, ah, ah. can. Oh, okay, okay. Second part, I'll get there. But the first one, the name will be called. I think I'll call the documentary um car crash in slow motion. <laughs> this can <laughs> it's not just car crash in motion, though. Car crash in slow motion. You know, I I mean, yeah. I think my whole life has been made up by little car crashes. When I say car crashes, right, it's those moments that you think that you're not gonna make it. You know, those moments where you feel like, oh shit, this is the end, I'm a loser, I, I, this is it. But then I build from it, you know, from like, a lot of things have happened in my life, like from the passing of my father, from terrible breakups, from being in an abusive situations. But these sort of moments have built me to become the person I am. So that's why car crash in slow motion. But in terms of who would play me in those dramatizations, does it have to be someone who is currently alive? Okay, because this is obviously yeah, hypothetical. Yeah, this is so, yeah, who's going to make a documentary about Aminda Faradilla? But yeah, who? Okay, because if that was the case, if I had to, it would be Ella Circa 96. Ah, not standing in the eyes of the world? Oh no, this is before Indua, Insan Bacinta, oh, yeah, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I think Ella and I, we have like, girl, if you ever, for by chance, come and watch this documentary, uh, this podcast, and be part of the four <laughs> listeners, girl, <Five>. me up. <laughs> But yeah, maybe Ella lah. Alright, Ratu Rock. I was thinking more like Cher. But okay, okay, I got it. Yes, or Andy Lala. We got the same mustache. <laughs> Andy Lala's daughter is that one, right? She loves that. Ah, she loves that. That's right. So, let's just say, right? Yeah, if you had to do a documentary about yourself, what would you name it? Huh? Where would you start? If you had to do a documentary about yourself, what would you name it? Ooh, Burger Double Cheese Special. That's what they call Burger Double Cheese Special, right? Oh my god, that's genius! And you know who would play me? Okay, Okay, so there's this thing, right? Someone had said that Amir looks exactly like Pekin or Pekin. I don't know why it's Pekin Ibrahim. So if you are out there, brother, I'm just going to say, you guys can do a twin movie. Uh, uh, you can you can be my stunt double, you know. But then again, I'm bigger than you. So yeah. I know this here, yeah. Alright, so in the 16 years you've been doing documentaries, right? Like, what's the weirdest thing that has happened to you? The weirdest oh. Uh, weirdest I mean there are a lot of things that I've done that I feel like now looking back it's a bit stupid lah. like I put my hands in boiling hot oil to prove a point I don't know Like was I there? no no it was like a silat thing and then I put my hands in boiling hot oil I walked on a coal a bit of coals don't know why now this now this is my favourite question I'll, I'll see every single one right? what's your three most favourite things to eat right and mm-hmm. where can we get that mm-hmm. husband's here yeah. um, the th- <laughs> it's a family show guys it's a family show. Okay, go. Good. Okay, the three, one, uh, let's do one in KL. Life Home. Lala Noodles Ooh. in Darling Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah my yeah, favorite. Yeah, yeah. Um, second one is 
Ah, um, nasi dalcha. Penang lah. Where's nasi dalcha, right? Is that there's nasi dalcha? There's one place. It's not the other place. And you know how Penang is, isn't it? You cannot go on a Sunday. The Sunday the sun cooks. You must go on a Tuesday where the father is cooking. Dalcha. Rahim, Dalcha Rahim, Nasi Dalcha Rahim in Little India. You will find it there. Okay. That is very good, better than Nasi Ganda. I know Indian, but uh, Penang guys will kill me for that. But it's true. I'm, I'm going to say one thing, right? Mm. Nasi Dalcha. I know the Penang fella is here, but Nasi Dalcha, pelitas Nasi Dalcha, legit pelita, the pelita at Butterworth, not the one in Ireland. Ah, uh, yeah, you mentioned this. Yes. Is Nasi Dalcha is TDF to die for? Really, it's, it's so good. It's so good. Really, we'll try it. Like, we mean because we don't go to Sebrang. <laughs> oh, sorry, Islanders. Oh, sorry, Islanders. Oh, okay. Good. Okay, Islander. The third thing, if I had to pick, the third thing, that it was, uh, the, the, what else do I like? To I, I know what's the third thing. What? Mama's mutton chops. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm going to learn how to cook those yeah. mutton chops as well. I tried. It's too much ghee. I just want to say that if, uh, these are places that should be accessible to other people, right? <laughs> but I think my mother will be very accessible to you. You just have to let us know. Uh, my mother will cook for you. Thank you very much. It will be about 35 ringgit per mutton. It's it's very good. <laughs> 35 ringgit, one piece. One bola. Uh, and then Amel's one is a boiled one. And yeah, you can have a boiled one. Uh, healthy living. $30. Discount $5 for ghee. So right in closing, Farah, is there anything uh, you know you want to say? Anything you want to you want to do a shout out? You want to promote your company, or you know you want to say something about the uh, documentary producer sisterhood brotherhood? You know anything you want to put out there? Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean the viewership is great here, right? So the, you know, I should really, <laughs> I should really push that narrative. Um, but here's the thing: I just think that when when we look at documentaries or we look at stories and we 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 consume these things i think we should all be kinder to each other mm. um we're not on social media so much so we don't really see the hate but i think there's a lot of judgment people place um but i think that if you take the time uh really just enjoy what you're watching and and here's the thing right i think sorry i'm just gonna die again edit how you want right but the point of the matter is this right right now everybody wants this sort of instant gratification mm. you want a 10 second videos that tells you everything you want to uh you want everything to be quick easy no ads nothing but just know that with every one of these videos whether it's an online video or whether it's a film you're watching in the cinema there's a bit of heart and there's a bit of soul that goes into those things mm. whether it be the characters or whether it be the filmmakers so take your time enjoy mm. stuff don't waste your time trying to be trying to get trying to get too much too quickly at the end of the day you don't remember anything right because I, I, I think if you were to ask people what stories really resonate with them it's mm. going to be the, those stories that took time that unraveled itself slowly no, exactly like all you short form content creators are, but, but, but it's true though like when you talk about it right what do we remember like if anyone shares like a TikTok video or whatever right you don't remember what are the things that they shared but if someone shared like a proper documentary for example like the Silat one dude I remembered it I remembered that, you know, that uh, American guy going through the journey. I remember it. That was your first documentary, right? Yeah, so tell stories that are worth telling, that's memorable, right? And more importantly, bring your viewer through that emotional journey, I, I think, you know? Yeah, and I think as a viewer, you should allow yourself to be brought. I mean, I'm guilty of this as well. I could be watching something on TV, but I'm also on my phone. Mm -hmm. And no, dude. Oh, so like, I, I can't do that. That's <laughs> like, good, that's good. Like if I watch, right, I'm locked in. You know? Yeah, yeah, and that's good. And I think that's the way you should be. Remember, it's a craft. It's a, it's, you know, there are things that if you watch and you really watch, like some documentaries, if you take the time to see how they set something up, you just, 
Like love is blind. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know what? I w- you know what? This is this is this is conversation that I had when I was in school, right? Um, are reality shows considered documentaries? I I would think so. I, I I mean I personally would think so. Like how I define that is I'm invested, you know. And the way I'm invested is not like watching an episode of Friends or you know, um yeah with. Like reality shows, like I'm honestly able to binge. I'm invested in the characters, and it's, it's so weird. Uh, it feels like a documentary to me. Yeah, I mean, what is a documentary, right? It's a story rooted in truth, right? So if it, unless it's super scripted, lah, like Jersey Shore or something like that, I don't know. But then if it's like Love Is Blind, for example, I don't know. Okay, I'm telling you, I, I've never seen an episode. But the there's these are real people experiencing real feelings, going through an experiment, and you're going through it with them. Mm. Why is that not a documentary? People want to be all highbrow and say it's not. I think it is, and it's okay. All right, that's it. Oh my god, we talked too much. Oh my god, I'm I'm, I'm looking forward for uh, that documentary burger dugging double special. Uh, Farah, I think she would be the executive what producer. The C cup. Oh, cannot get cannot, cannot. I was gonna. <laughs> you mean my A cups? All right, guys. All right. Uh, so that's all the time we have. Uh, so Farah, thank you for being here. Uh, you know, one of the uh, early episodes that we have. So guys, uh, you know, if you have an interesting story that you want to tell, uh, you can just hit me up on my socials. Socials. You know, uh, find the real podcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, let's catch you in the next episode. Peace. You don't even have a domain name. <laughs> so no. You wait, la, you wait. You wait. Next episode. No, here's the thing. I know, here's the thing. Great. If ever this could be an outtake, but you guys need to do a tour of the setup. I think um, all 10 seconds of it, but then you should do that. Hey, one of the episodes we'll be doing with Brandon, okay? The guy who built this studio in six months, so watch out for that. You should definitely cut and do a tour when you do his episode. Okay, get that. All right, ciao! <laughs>